this is our last colloquium of the fall semester. So just as a reminder to everyone, and we're very excited to have uh, Dr. John Fields as our, our last speaker. I just want to remind everyone also that the Ag BioFuse PhD Fellowship Program is now accepting application for our third and final cohort. So that deadline is February 1st, and we will be holding a Zoom Q&A uh, December 10th. So more details to come for all uh, applicants and students that are interested in learning more about the program and applying for the third cohort. And we are very lucky to have the, our presenter today. It was coordinated by our second cohort of Ag Biofuse students. So I am gonna go ahead and let Andrew um, have the mic. All right, thank you, Don. So yeah, thanks everyone for coming to uh, see our last speaker today for the uh, semester. So my name is Andrew Hardwick and I'm a member of the second cohort of Ag Biofuse. We started in 2020, so we're pretty used to Zoom at this point. Um, so we're a total of nine students, but um, some of us weren't able to attend Colcom today due to class conflicts and such, but you at least get to see some of us today. And so um, I'll ask that all the members of the cohort give a quick wave so everybody knows who we are that helped organize this today. And um, now I'll pass it on to Dana to talk a little bit about our speaker for today. Thank you, Andrew. I hope I'm unmuted. Okay. Um, hi, everyone, and thanks again for making it today. So our presenter today is Dr. John Field, who is an R&D staff member in the Bioresource Science and Engineering Group within the Environmental Sciences Division at the Oak Ridge National Lab. He studies the performance of bioenergy systems at the intersection of ecosystem ecology and life cycle assessment. He uses process-based ecosystem models to evaluate the effect of biomass feedstock production on ecosystem carbon storage and greenhouse gas emissions. He has conducted work on numerous feedstocks, including switchgrass, constover, winter oilseed crops, and wood from trees killed by mountain pine beetle outbreaks in the Rocky Mountains. Much of his work has focused on bioenergy landscape design, including how feedstock production could be targeted on marginal lands to maximize environmental benefits. He has a particular interest in carbon negative bioenergy systems, including carbon capture and storage, storage technology and pyrolysis and gasification systems that co-produce biochar. John received his BSc from Case Western Reserve University and his PhD from Colorado State University. He was previously a research scientist at the Colorado State University Natural Resource Ecology Lab. And with this, I'll pass it on to Joseph to add more about his bio. So, Dana, thanks very much. We actually chose Dr. Field as a colloquium speaker for um, quite a number of reasons, including one being that at the beginning of the semester, we as a cohort concluded our uh, conversations around our final project. And we are working on genetically engineered carbon capture sequestrated crops. Um, in addition to this overlap, we also learned that John actually went through a very similar National Science Foundation funded interdisciplinary fellowship program when he was a grad student at the Colorado State University. And this sparked our interest in Dr. Phil's work. And that's the reason we have him today. One of our colleagues, Sandra Etheridge, has done some Work with him before, too bad that Sandy isn't here today. But um, Dr. Field, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and the floor is now yours. 
All right. Thank you so much, Joseph, and uh, everyone else who did a nice introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm just going to start sharing my screen here. And uh, yeah, I uh, went through a very similar um, uh, interdisciplinary program myself when I was a PhD student at Colorado State. So it's wonderful to uh, to see you all doing something similar. It was a great experience for me. Uh, my background was originally in engineering, and through that program, I got to work with a set of uh, soil scientists and ecologists, and it really changed the trajectory of my career and the types of problems that I work on, and hopefully you'll see that in the slides today. And so before I jump in, is it still sharing okay? All right. Yes. Excellent. Okay. So... Uh, with that, I'm going to speak about carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas mitigation in Carinata cropping systems. And in terms of background and introduction, I have worked in the biofuel and bioenergy space since I was a graduate student. And that's a field that has, I would say, evolved a lot over the past 15 years or so. Interest in it has kind of waxed and waned over time. Uh, when I first started graduate school, there was a lot of interest in ethanol as a road transportation fuel. And the idea was you were going to be able to fill up your car with a mix that was 85% ethanol, 15% gasoline, and we were going to reduce our fossil fuel emissions and reduce our consumption of gasoline. And if you're in the, the market for a new car these days, you see less and less uh, of the the uh, ethanol compliant vehicles that kind of uh, work with this vision. And you see more and more of these, you know, electric vehicles have really taken off. You've got Teslas, you've got Nissan Leafs, you've got a variety of different uh, models often offered by different brands these days. And that's where a lot of the energy and a lot of the investment is these days. And for a while, interest in biofuels was, was maybe uh, lowering a bit over time, but there's still other areas of the energy economy where they might play a really strong and really unique role uh, in the future moving forward. One of those is in aviation. And aviation is an area where we're really not close to having you know, a Tesla-style battery-powered airplane anytime soon. The technology just isn't there. The, the weight and the volume of the batteries uh, is, is very problematic and is going to be so for the foreseeable future. All the while, aviation is, is growing. It's a larger and larger share of our emissions footprint, and it's something that we have to address. And so the aviation industry is looking at a variety of measures on how we can do this. Uh, there's things they can do in terms of um, uh, introducing more efficiency in their route planning and their operations. There's certain things they can do in terms of making their airplanes more fuel efficient. But if they want to limit their emissions to 2020 levels or below moving forward, the bulk of that is going to have to come from uh, switching fuel types and moving away from fossil fuels. And so there's a lot of interest in bioenergy and biofuels in this space. And we're starting to see more and more commercial scale production of what they call biojets or uh, sustainable aviation fuel uh, made from, from biological sources. One of the technologies that's out there right now that's, that's mature, that's growing uh, is corn to alcohol 
to Biojet. So we've been doing corn to alcohol for a long time uh, for for uh, car fuels. Uh, there's now technology where you can go from alcohol to a drop-in uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So you can use that fuel. Uh, you don't have to buy new planes or change the design of anything. And this is starting to be rolled out at commercial scale. So here's an example of a facility in Minnesota by a company called Jivo. And there's a lot of interest in this, but there's also a lot of challenges. Anytime you're doing a feedstock like corn, it requires prime agricultural land. So it potentially competes with food production. And then it also uh, is a relatively high input crop. It requires a lot of fertilizer. In some climates, it requires irrigation, pesticides, a lot of operations, running a tractor back and forth to apply all these chemicals and do the harvest. And there's a lot of questions about the sustainability of this feedstock. Moving forward, there's a lot of interest in doing not first-generation fuels like corn ethanol biojet, uh, but cellulosic biofuels up to biojet. But the challenge there is going from cellulosic biomass to alcohol. Um, there's a lot of companies, a lot of investment uh, in this area, a lot of technology advances, but it's, it's technologically difficult and it's been expensive for a long time. And so a lot of my colleagues do research on that, and we're certainly hoping to lower the, the expense over time, uh, but it's been a stubborn problem. An alternative to these two options, uh, we can start to think about uh, other sustainable bioenergy feedstocks. And in order to have really low impact win-win solutions from our feedstocks, we have to think about using land in a very careful way. And we have to think about ecosystem services, growing crops that are gonna improve uh, our outlook for soil erosion, for uh, water quality and things like that. And so there's a lot of interest in sustainable intensification. So growing uh, energy crops on marginal lands, getting more bang for your buck in terms of the area uh, that you're cultivating. And then something called temporal intensification, this idea that in a lot of our cropping systems, there's not much going on after you harvest in the fall until you plant in the spring. There's a lot of land out there that is, is just bare. And during that time, it's subject to wind and water erosion and also losing uh, nutrients, losing the, the nitrogen uh, derived from the fertilizer that's put into that system and contributing to water quality issues over that time. And there's a lot of interest in either winter cover crops or winter cash crops as a way to uh, get more vegetation on that landscape to potentially produce feedstocks for uh, sustainable aviation fuels and other applications, and then also to uh, start to tackle those erosion issues and those water quality issues. And so that's the crop that I've been researching lately. Um, Brassica carinata, our common name of Ethiopian mustard. It's an oilseed crop, it's non-edible. There's some non-edible fractions in the oil profile. Um, it can be integrated into a variety of cropping systems. Uh, in the Southeastern US where the temperatures are mild, uh, it can be grown as a winter cash crop. In other systems, uh, for example, in uh, the Great Plains, it could potentially be grown as a uh, summer crop to replace some of the fallow seasons there. And so I have been part of, for the last several years, a project called SPARC, which stands for, 
I had it written down here somewhere. Uh, sustainable production of, uh, um, let's see. Um, actually, I'm missing it, but the C is Carinata. And so it's all about Southeastern production of, of sustainable uh, Carinata crops with an eye towards sustainable aviation fuels. We're working with a company called New Seed that's doing all of the uh, breeding and genetic improvement of the crop. So they're targeting things like increased yields, earlier maturity, so it fits nicely into existing uh, agricultural rotations in the Southeast, improvement of uh, disease resistance and things like that. And then this is a, a crop that already has an ASTM certified pathway for upgrading that fuel to, uh, or upgrading the, the oil that's produced from this crop to sustainable aviation fuel. So this is a technology that's ready to go if we can scale up the crop. But as we're scaling up these crops, we have to think about the impacts and the greenhouse gas footprint of growing the crop itself. Anytime we're growing a crop, um, anytime we're using fertilizer, we're potentially uh, contributing to emissions of nitrous oxide from the soils. And that's actually the largest component of the greenhouse gas footprint uh, of agricultural production in the U.S. It's a really uh, potent gas. It's about 300 times the global warming potential of an equivalent unit of CO2. And it's something that really uh, contributes to sustainability challenges in the context of first-generation biofuels. So if you look at making uh, ethanol from corn, if you try to add up all of the emissions and impacts associated with the life cycle of producing that corn ethanol. So you're looking at production of fertilizer, production of fuel, application of those on the farm, energy use on the farm, all the way up to harvesting that material, that corn, converting it to ethanol, and then using it in, in a car or upgrading it to biojet fuel. The N2O emissions associated with applying that fertilizer uh, to grow that corn is a really substantial uh, component of the overall footprint. And it's something that, that potentially, uh, if you can't control it, if you can't start to minimize it and mitigate it, uh, it, it potentially compromises the sustainability and the overall greenhouse gas benefits of corn ethanol uh, production. So N2O is something that we always have to be aware of when we're proposing new bioenergy feedstocks that require uh, nitrogen fertilizer application. And then the other thing we need to think about is carbon storage in soils. Um, there is a lot of interest in improving our agricultural practices to build up soil organic matter and store more soil, more carbon in soil over time. The thinking is if we can start to do this at large scales, it potentially starts to cancel out some of these N2O impacts that are really hard to avoid. Um, so a lot of interest in best management practices that might increase our levels of soil carbon. And uh, things, best management practices in that category include things like uh, reducing the amount of tillage associated with crop production includes things like organic matter uh, or organic amendments. So things like applying um, uh, compost or biochar materials like that. 
And then also uh, production of cover crops whenever and wherever that's possible. And the thinking is that if you rolled out these best management practices at uh, uh, you know really large scale across the U.S., they're potentially taking a big bite out of the rest of our greenhouse gas footprint, particularly those hard to offset N2O emissions. So N2O uh, emissions and then soil carbon sequestration, those are kind of the big players when we're thinking about the greenhouse gas impacts of new feedstocks. And so that's what my work is trying to assess. And as we start to use models and make estimates of these N2O and these soil carbon impacts, uh, that's a little bit of a sliding scale. The quality of the the estimates that we're able to make uh, really evolves over time as the amount of data and the quality of data that we have to calibrate and validate our models evolves over time. And um, when you think about uh, Carinata in particular, it's a relatively uh, new crop. It's still under development. It's been deployed at limited scales in the Southeast where we're doing our assessment. So there's a lot of uh, field trial data that we're able to leverage uh, where our university partners have gone in. They've tested a variety of different uh, Carinata uh, cultivars and uh, uh, new uh, genoplasms that have been developed by our commercial partners. Um, so when it comes to field measurement of soil carbon and N2O, that's actually really challenging and really time consuming. Uh, when you're talking about soil carbon, it's somebody out there in the field who's taking soil cores bringing that back to the lab, doing a lot of labor-intensive processing and, and measurements in order to get those soil carbon readings. When you're thinking about nitrous oxide or N2O emissions, uh, typically you have these, these chambers that are deployed out in the field where you actually seal off the, the headspace uh, around your system let some of that N2O gas build up over time and then take a measurement and uh, uh, run it through a, a GC. And again, you know, not something that, that scales very well or is, is very easy to, um, uh, to deploy over time. So we use models in combination with these uh, limited measurements that we have in order to um, uh, extrapolate and, and really um, improve the quality of assessment that we can do moving towards regional scale estimation for use in life cycle assessment studies to really understand the impacts as you deploy these things uh, at commercial scale and you start to rack up commercial experience. So within our SPARC project, we have a lot of field trial data. We have a little bit of commercial scale data looking at the yields of Carinata within this region. We don't yet have any soil greenhouse gas measurements. We have some that are uh, starting to come online soon, but we don't have those available for uh, validating our model right now. So we are using models uh, and our limited uh, field trial and commercial yield data to try to make some initial estimates of our expectations for what that greenhouse gas footprint might be, what's going on in terms of soil carbon and nitrous oxide. And the model we use for that is called the Dayset model. That's something that was developed at Colorado State University in the research group where I did my PhD. 
And it is a daily time step model that's trying to simulate the cycling of carbon, nitrogen, and water through agricultural systems and or natural ecosystems. It's simulating things like the growth of plants, their death, decay, the breakdown of that uh, plant biomass and its stabilization as soil organic matter. Uh, and it's doing this, um, uh, in the course of doing this, we can make predictions of plant productivity, changes in soil organic matter and organic carbon, and then uh, uh, losses of nitrogen gases, including N2O. And these predictions, it's like I mentioned, it's a daily time step. And we are using information uh, in this list in order to drive the model. So we have to specify for each simulation what our latitude is. So it, the model knows what the day length is. Uh, climate information, we feed it with daily weather data. So it knows temperatures, it knows precipitation. It can track uh, soil moisture uh, levels as it evolves over time. Uh, we need information on the depth and texture of the soil profile and then information on uh, management. So what are we doing in terms of tillage, in terms of nitrogen fertilizer application? It's not a model that's sensitive to topography, uh, water logging, and things like that. So it, it can predict at the landscape scale based on some important factors, but it misses other ones. And in order to, to really start to understand how these crops might be deployed, at landscape scales, uh, at the scale of an individual production facility uh, for, for biojet fuel, or at the scale of an entire region, perhaps supplying uh, an airport, um, we, we take this descent model and, and we deploy it and we run a large number of simulations in order to account for the heterogeneity in the landscape. And so we have standardized uh, spatial data sources that we use to drive the model. Uh, we have uh, weather data from the PRISM database um, at the 12 kilometer resolution. We have uh, land use data from the National Land Cover database that's uh, much, much finer scale. So we know where annual cropland is as opposed to grassland or forest or wetland. And then we also have very high resolution uh, soil data from the Soil Survey Geographic database so we can get at soil depth and texture. And so in our modeling scenarios, we've looked at the southeastern U.S. and we've looked at uh, existing annual cropland in that region. And for all of that existing annual cropland, uh, for simplicity, we are modeling it as being under a cotton-cotton peanut rotation. So those are uh, uh, some of the more common crops in the area. That's a representative rotation. Uh, and in the case of Carinata, we've worked uh, with our agronomists within our SPARC project and developed an alternative rotation where Carinata is grown as a winter cash crop in between the two cotton uh, rotations. Uh, so it's grown once every three winters and harvested for biojet production. In terms of the management, we considered a base case uh, where you're doing a fairly aggressive uh, field preparation, tillage prior to planting the crop. Uh, you're, you're fertilizing at uh, 90 uh, kilograms of nitrogen per hectare uh, in a split application. And then you're harvesting in late May, uh, just prior to your, your next summer crop. We also looked at a couple of what we're calling climate smart management alternatives that potentially 
improve the soil greenhouse gas footprint of the crop. Specifically, we're looking at no-till planting, where you're just drilling the seed in uh, to the stubble that's left over from the previous harvest. And we also looked at uh, poultry litter application as an alternative to uh, synthetic fertilizer application. And so in that scenario, half of your, uh, your N input is coming in the form of poultry litter, which is a material that is uh, very common in the, uh, in the Southeastern uh, US um, and it's a waste material to be managed there. And so these simulations were all done um, in a system called uh, the, the Comet Farm System, which is a tool, uh, it's an online tool uh, that's used for voluntary greenhouse gas reporting. And the idea is that uh, farmers or, or other users can get on the Comet Farm website they can go through a process where they're inputting data on how they have on where their their land is, where the farm might be located, and then how it's been managed uh, for the last ten years or so in terms of the crop that's grown, in terms of tillage practice, nitrogen application, things like that, uh, and that allows us to make predictions uh, of how soil carbon. Uh, has evolved over time and how it might evolve into the future when you start to think about uh, management changes or new crops like, like Carinata into the future. And so for the purposes of this study, uh, this was our assessment area. This is kind of the region where uh, it's thought that Carinata is gonna grow well. Uh, the, this region uh, was defined on the northern area by the, the frost zone, where um, uh, you start having issues with uh, mortality of the crop over winter. So we identified about 2.3 million hectares of annual cropland uh, in this region of southern Alabama, southern Georgia, and northern Florida. And that's uh, the distribution uh, in the map there. And it's a relatively small region, but nonetheless, there's a lot of diversity within that region. Uh, when you overlay our standard climate databases on top of this, you see that there's some north to south gradients in, in temperature, average temperature. Um, and then there's also some precipitation gradients as well with the, the, the wettest areas kind of in the Gulf Coast of of Alabama. So these are uh, standard inputs uh, that we're going to use to drive our day set simulation. We're going to use 30 years of historic weather data, daily weather data, and on um, each day of our simulation, we're going to use that information to see on this particular day, based on the temperature, based on how wet the soil profile might be, how well is the crop going to grow that day, and what's going on in terms of uh, cycling of organic matter in the soil underneath the crop and also emissions of N2O uh, from that soil. So in addition to the weather data, we also use data on uh, uh, the soil texture. And in this region, we have pretty extreme variability. In uh, As you go up here into Alabama, you have relatively moderately textured soils, whereas as you go south and you get into Florida, you get into really, really uh, extreme sand soils down there. And that's a challenge uh, when, when you get into those really coarse sandy soils, it's challenging in the context of holding on to water and nutrients. You tend to just run things through 
the soil profile. And so those are the kinds of effects that our descent model is trying to capture. Before we can run any simulations for Carinata, though, that's a new crop. And so we had to calibrate Carinata within our descent model. And as I mentioned previously, we had a variety of field trial data sources within our SPARC project that we were able to leverage. So there's two University of Florida experimental sites uh, that have been doing uh, for the past several years uh, relatively small scale field trials, uh, looking at different varieties of Carinata, looking at uh, yield in response to different rates of nitrogen fertilizer application, and then also tracking things like the carbon to nitrogen ratio uh, of the plant tissues, and then the root to shoot ratio of the plant. These are all uh, types of data that are useful in calibrating our model and telling Descent how you you grow that plant, how efficient it is at converting uh, uh, light into carbon and what it does with that carbon, where it puts it, does it put it into roots, does it put it into above ground biomass, and then finally how much nitrogen it needs in order to support uh, that, that biomass growth. So we had all of that field trial data here. And then we also had just a little bit of field scale data uh, from our commercial partner, New Seed. So there were five sites in Georgia where they've been starting to grow this crop at larger scale. And we have some data on uh, the yield of that crop that we can use to validate our model. And so here's our uh, validation plots looking at um, comparing simulated yield of Carinata seed to what was observed across those, uh, those uh, field trials and then also the five commercial scale production uh, fields in Georgia. And after some calibration, um, you know, we, we have relatively good prediction of yield across this region. Uh, there's a lot of variety in the yield, anywhere from about one ton to, to four metric tons uh, per hectare per year. And we're, we're able to capture a lot of that variability, about 75% of that variability in our, our descent model so far. So taking that calibrated model then and plugging it back into our spatial analysis where we're running uh, tens of thousands of simulations in order to represent the heterogeneity in, uh, I'll show on this previous slide, the heterogeneity in climate and the heterogeneity in soils across our case study area. Uh, this is what those results look like with our calibrated model. And so we are predicting in terms of the per area uh, seed yield rate, um, there's some variability here. The rate really falls off uh, as you get into the coarse textured soils in Florida that have trouble holding on to nitrogen and water over the growing season. But in general, uh, for the rest of our assessment region, you're getting uh, predicted yield values that are two and a half tons per hectare per year or greater. This is fairly sensitive to nitrogen application rate. We did a little bit of sensitivity analysis and uh, you, you really do need the nitrogen input in order to, to get these reasonable yields. And when you take this yield map and you superimpose it over the area 
uh, where there is annual cropland, where you could fit this Carinata crop into these existing, uh, what we're assuming for simplicity, or cotton, cotton, peanut uh, rotations, this is where you would expect the production uh, within this landscape. So the areas of highest Carinata yield, according to our simulations, line up pretty nicely with the areas of annual cropping in this area. And so then you can start to predict county by county how much production you would get every year if you did this integration into all of that annual cropland within that county. But again, uh, growing Carinata only once every three years. So that's what's going on in terms of our yield prediction. In terms of our soil carbon prediction, for each one of the tens of thousands of simulations uh, that we're, we're running in our descent model, we're trying to track how soil carbon might be evolving over time with and without uh, this Carinata integrated into the rotation. And so for, for each of those simulations, uh, this is just kind of zooming in on a subset of our results. Uh, but for this particular simulation, we're trying to predict how soil carbon uh, is changing uh, over time within this system as a function of management, as a function of how productive uh, your, your cropping system is. Uh, so we, we are taking historic predictions of, of uh, uh, that, that productivity and that soil carbon evolution into the present day and then into the future in a business as usual case, which is shown in the lighter line here. And then also into the future in the case where you're doing that Carinata integration once every three years into your rotation. And that's the solid line here. And the difference between those two lines is the difference in soil carbon sequestration associated with that Carinata production. And so when you're growing Carinata, you've got kind of two factors that are fighting each other. Uh, you, you're producing additional crop, right? So you've got more carbon inputs to your system. You've got roots that are growing uh, over the course of the winter. You've got above ground biomass that's not harvested with the Carinata grain uh, or seed rather that's, that's left over and tilled into the soil uh, with the field preparation for the next summer crop. And so all of that is additional carbon input that's potentially building up your soil carbon levels. You also have the more uh, tillage associated with preparing the field for that Carinata planting. And so those are the two factors that are fighting each other. In our simulations, uh, in our base case, we're finding that, uh, or we're predicting that uh, the inputs win out over the additional soil disturbance and you're getting uh, an increase, a net increase in soil carbon with the Carinata. And so when we look at that over our study area, there's some spatial variability. You're getting uh, more soil carbon increase in the finer textured soils than you are in the really sandy soils in Florida. You're also getting uh, changes in N2O emissions. Um, you have N2O uh, hotspots in, in uh, certain areas of the map. Um, N2O is a potent greenhouse gas, so we have to kind of compare how the soil carbon uh, increases uh, work and, and compare with the N2O increases that we're seeing. When you put those things together and you look at them on a CO2 equivalent basis, 
in general, the soil carbon sequestration that you're getting with Carinata is much greater than the additional N2O emissions you get with Carinata, uh, with the additional nitrogen fertilizer application that you need in order to grow that Carinata. So in general, over most of our uh, uh, assessment region, we're predicting a net soil greenhouse gas sink shown in blue here, where you are basically storing more carbon than you are emitting carbon equivalent uh, nitrous oxide. So it's a positive greenhouse gas story there. So then finally, uh, looking at the last set of results and zooming out to, to the total regional production scale, and all of these different scenarios that we looked at, the base management and the uh, low carbon climate smart management scenarios, you're producing about 1.1 billion uh, liters of sustainable aviation fuel per year, that equivalent amount of Carinata seed. And that may sound like a big number, but we use a lot of aviation fuel in the US. And so that corresponds to about a week of our uh, fuel use uh, in the US. However, uh, it's a relatively small case study area. And so if you could do something similar with different crops in different regions, this would scale up and you could potentially take a pretty good bite out of your total uh, uh, aviation fuel use right now. Uh, like we mentioned in the previous slide, we're looking at a slight net soil greenhouse gas sink with our base management case. Um, when you put that into uh, terms of the finished fuel, uh, if you look at conventional aviation fuel, uh, for every megajoule of that fuel you're using, the greenhouse gas footprint is 89 grams of CO2. So that's the total emissions of creating that fossil jet fuel, distributing it, getting it into your airplane, and then burning it uh, within your airplane. It's kind of a funny unit, but that's what we use for life cycle assessment of fuels. Um, so 89 grams CO2 equivalent, that is your, your conventional fossil fuel footprint. So if you're thinking about Carinata as a way to um, really store carbon on the landscape and, and, and sequester carbon in your agricultural system, that's not a huge effect when you're thinking about the, the finished fuel. That's only equivalent to a couple of grams per megajoule of, of sustainable aviation fuel produced in the system. So it's, it's, it's kind of a wash. Um, but when you start looking at your uh, climate smart management scenarios, in both of those cases, when you're moving towards uh, no-till uh, planting of your Carinata, so you're not doing that tillage initially, you're not disturbing the soil and, and losing soil carbon there, uh, you have a much, much larger soil carbon sink. Likewise, if you are replacing some, some of your fertilizer application uh, with poultry litter as your end source, you're introducing a lot of organic material in that poultry litter and potentially sequestering a lot more soil carbon there as well. And in those two cases, so you've grown your soil carbon sink that's shown in blue here, uh, really large, uh, so it's more than canceling out your N2O emissions. You're getting a much, much stronger net soil carbon sink. And when you start expressing that in terms of the footprint of the fuel, you're getting into 15 or 20 uh, grams of CO2 equivalent per megajoule of fuel. So that's becoming relatively significant compared to the footprint of, uh, say, conventional uh, fossil aviation fuel for perspective. So 
Uh, final slide here, in terms of our conclusions, uh, we find that there's uh, a decent uh, production potential from Carinata in our southeastern U.S. region, um, more than a billion gallons per year, even if you're only growing it once every third year, every third uh, winter in your rotations. You're getting relatively good yields everywhere except on the sandiest soils within that case study area. Uh, associated with that, your greenhouse gas impacts of doing that is going to be a really strong function of management. So you can go anywhere from being uh, uh, relatively neutral uh, feedstock production in terms of soil greenhouse gas footprint, all the way to a fairly substantial soil carbon sink. And that's going to depend on how you're managing the crop, how you're tilling the soil, uh, before you're planting your crop and what your nitrogen source is, whether or not you can get some additional organic matter in the system uh, uh, associated with uh, organic matter amendments. So uh, with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and I'd love to open it up to questions. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Field, for that wonderful presentation. Um, so as normal with GES colloquiums, um, the floor is now open to questions. Feel free to post them in the chat. Um, I'll be moderating that. Or if you have a question ready, you can raise your hand and we'll just move through the room. All right, and our first question is from Jill. So if you wanna unmute yourself. Thank you so much for your presentation, Dr. Phil. Um, uh, looking at the part where you did your model um, validation and sensitivity analysis, you mentioned that it was fairly sensitive. So I wonder if that led to, you know, first of all, I wonder if you were confident and happy with the sensitivity that you got using your model when you input the data, and if that contributed to the results you have, like you, you know, you have the 1.1, I don't, I don't remember the units, uh, but I wonder if that affected the results you have in the end, and if this is something you're working on to improve or even if it can be improved in the future. Absolutely, yeah. So, so 1.1 billion liters of sustainable aviation fuel production from Carinata in that case study region. Um, I feel fairly good about that prediction based on the data that we have so far. Um, but um, as I mentioned early in the presentation, this kind of modeling, it's, it's an iterative process, right? So we, we typically start out with very modest amounts of fields data um, that we can use then to, to uh, calibrate our model to make some predictions. And then ideally, as additional data becomes on, uh, available, you are then uh, confronting the model with that new data, um, validating, possibly readjusting the calibration, and iterating forward like that. And so for the time being, uh, you know, we had a modest amount of field trial data. We had a modest amount of commercial scale production data. We had no data on soil carbon or N2O emissions yet. So those predictions are uh, not very well grounded in data at this point. Um, but as we start to get some of that data from the field, uh, like is being collected within our Spark project right now, and as we start to get more commercial scale data uh, on the the uh, yields of Carinata in this region, we can then iterate back to our predictions and see 
was this a good prediction? Do we have to revisit our calibration? How do we move forward and really strengthen the assessment that we're doing? So feel good about it with, with some uh, qualifications now. Thank you. Um, Paul, if you'd like to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. Oh, I think you're mute. Are we having trouble hearing you? Is that better? Yes. I think I have my phone muted. Uh, hey, John, Paul Ulance from the North Carolina Biotech Center. Thank you for that presentation. Uh, there's been a, a number of people at NC State University for years that are looking at, um, you know, winter oil seeds as an opportunity for, you know, bioenergy production. Um, so we've taken a deep dive with them uh, to try to evaluate opportunities. It always seems that a holdup is there's always this chicken and egg issue with getting farmers to potentially grow a crop when there's no market. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the whole idea of, of a crop rotation opportunity just makes a lot of sense. With the data that you're gathering, you know, this is great new intelligence on the opportunity for this. Do you have any, um, do you have any vision for how this is going to be helpful to convince farmers to eventually get this in the ground, either as, you know, just as a um, cover crop, starting with that and eventually leading, you know, to the development of a aviation fuel processing industry? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good question and a big one. Uh, I would say that um, so USDA is good at funding these big uh, cap projects, of which Spark is is one of them, uh, where they're really looking at uh, feedstock production from a number of different angles. So the, in addition to all the agronomic work and all of the environmental sustainability modeling. Within Spark, we also have uh, uh, an extension team that's interacting with landowners, trying to figure out, um, uh, you know, kind of kind of the needs and constraints there. There's ag economists that are trying to figure out what the outlook is. Does does this pencil out for people or not? Um, the 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 thinking, uh, as I understand it, is that this system is really sensitive to the maturation of the carinata and how early you can harvest the carinata. If that's too late, it starts to really conflict with some of the other crops in uh, your rotation. I, I believe that um, corn and soy are particularly tough in, in that regard, which is why we're, we're modeling the rotations that we are. So I think that's kind of one of the um, the cruxes that, that the project and the industry is still trying to, to navigate there. I do like your suggestion, though, of pursuing these things initially as, as just a, a cover crop for soil health reasons. And then, you know, if and when the market for the, the oil seed component of it starts to evolve, um, you know, uh, bringing that part of it online as well. I think there's a lot of potential there. And I think, you know, with Carinata in particular, uh, there's a lot of interface with the uh, aviation community. And so um, there are a variety of commercial partners that are interested in this. And because the fuel upgrading pathway is already there, it's already ASTM certified, I think that potentially uh, uh, kind of de-risks the whole uh, scenario for the commercial partner. So, you know, is, there's always a chicken and egg who's going to, you know, how much cultivation are you going to have and, and who's going to be the first to, uh, you know, build a facility. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of Spark and projects like it is just to help lower those barriers. 
One quick follow-on question of that oh, is I know sure. you were focused on Carinata. I know a lot of the research done in North Carolina was not also on Camelina. Um, do you see a difference um, in the two crops? Because one of the outputs certainly is the oil, but the other output is the protein. Um, and that was one of the benefits we saw potentially of, of Camelina was potentially um, a better protein source as, you know, as a feed additive for animals, et cetera. But I was just curious if um, it's been a while since I've done a deep dive comparison all the, the Nebraska winter oil seeds. So I was curious what your thoughts on Carinata over Camelina. Uh, thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I honestly uh, don't know. I'd have to kick that to some of the uh, uh, agronomy uh, partners on, on the project. And then also there is a uh, research area within Spark looking at uh, the, the, the meal uh, that's left over after you, you press the oil seeds uh, as a potential animal feed and looking at the protein profile of that. That work is still ongoing, so I'm not sure if there's really been uh, a conclusion or, or you know lessons learned to that yet. But it's definitely something that we're thinking about. Um, but I couldn't tell you offhand how the two compare. Great. Um, next, we have Eric. If you want to unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi. You kind of just answered my question. I was more. I was curious about the crop combination that you had and. I was going to throw in why didn't you add corn in there, but you kind of answered that already. Um, do you have, did you try other combinations to see what uh, the results would be like? Uh, no, we have not done any of those simulations within uh, our descent model. Uh, within uh, the uh, project more broadly, there's a lot of thinking about that. And in particular, uh, we're working with uh, Panit Dvedi at uh, Georgia, uh, University of Georgia, uh, who's been thinking a lot about kind of the optimal uh, rotations and, and the economics and exactly how these things might work together. Uh, so others have thought uh, more substantially about that issue than I have. When it comes to descent modeling, I'm not sure how sensitive our results would really be to the existing rotation. Uh, that's going to help uh, determine what your initial soil carbon and your business as usual soil carbon levels are, and also you know nitrogen availability in the system. Uh, but in general, for a lot of these um, annual crops in the system, I think our results are probably a little bit more sensitive to historic land use than they are to the, the productivity and the finer details of the current day rotation. So I don't think we would see a dramatic change in any of our results um, if and when we started to look at additional rotations. But it's a good it's a good comment and probably something we ought to look at in the future. Right. Um, Dr. Field, if you're able to stop your screen share and then we can see oh, more yeah. of the the um, audience. Um, next question is from Dylan. Do you want to unmute yourself? Uh, hi, uh, really enjoyed the, the talk. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit, kind of uh, following up on the, the last question in a way, um, what the advantages are of using Carinata as the specific you know, uh, energy source for this type of fuel? 
Carinata as opposed to other oil seeds or other well, other oil seeds or like um you know as opposed to corn or cellulose or whichever gotcha gotcha yeah okay well yeah so i think that the and you're comparing to something like corn corn is uh a lot of the whole picture here is driven by the conversion of the feedstock to final fuels. And so corn is nice because uh, the technology is really dialed in uh, to, to do that conversion. And it's increasingly uh, cheap and, and available. Um, but, you know, corn um, is a, it's a summer crop. It requires land use. It requires a lot of, uh, you know, fairly substantial inputs. And so when you zoom out and you look at the whole life cycle, it's been controversial when you start to account for all the inputs to the corn, the land use associated with the corn, how much benefit do you really get at the end of the day? Um, uh, you know, doing that, that, that replacement of, uh, corn biofuels for, for conventional fossil fuels. Uh, so yeah, one of the big advantages of the, uh, you know, any kind of winter oil seed like this is that you don't have land use associated with it, or rather it works its way into existing rotations um, and, and doesn't necessarily compete with your, your summer crops if you do it right. And so from a sustainability perspective, that's kind of a whole new ballgame because you really start to sidestep some of these concerns about food versus fuel and and things like that that have really made first generation biofuels pretty controversial. Um, the nice thing about the oil seeds in particular is that the upgrading from the feedstock to the fuel is really easy compared to like a cellulosic crop. So if you were just growing any sort of winter cover crop for biomass and then harvesting that and trying to make fuel out of it, that's something else that we can we can think about and we can model. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just a lot more challenging to do that feedstock to fuel conversion step. Interesting, Thanks. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, our next question is from the chat. Jason, do you wanna uh, state your question or do you want me to read it out? I'm not sure if my microphone is working or not. Um, we can hear you. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. I just was just thinking about the potential for genetic engineering or gene editing to be a part of these scenarios. And I wondered if your team had looked at, I mean, obviously this is not a major crop. And so there hasn't been the kind of research done on genetically engineering, um, you know, that crop compared to corn or cotton or soy or things like that. But if we think about the kinds of traits that could be impacted by genetic engineering, given current technologies, would your models be affected significantly by you know, changes in yield or changes in uh, required nitrogen or things like that? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So if, if you can improve the crop in that way, either by genetic engineering or conventional breeding or anything in between, uh, that's definitely something that, that we care about in the model. So it's gonna be sensitive to overall productivity, to above ground, below ground allocation, uh, to uh, lignin content of the plant tissues, seed end ratio of the plant tissues. Uh, I think those are the biggest ones. And uh, not within Spark, but within some of my other projects, uh, we, we do a lot of work within uh, the Department of Energy on switchgrass as a feedstock crop. And there's big efforts to engineer that, uh, both for higher productivity, and then also starting to think about how you might engineer that for 
increase soil carbon sequestration, you know, and, and do you want to do more root zone uh, uh, allocation? Can you encourage, you know, particular uh, plant microbe associations that might be uh, uh, more efficient at stabilizing uh, plant exudates uh, as soil carbon, uh, things like that. So, so there's a lot of big thinking in, in that direction um, that ties into, you know, plant engineering and, and breeding and synthetic biology and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think we've gotten into anything like that within our Spark project for this particular feedstock though. Thank you. And um, the next question is in the chat as well. Um, John, do you want to unmute yourself and ask a question? Uh, thank you. Hi, John. Thank you for the presentation. Um, although this is not related to greenhouse gases per se, um, we are fighting more than one battle overall. And I wonder if, if Descent is, uh, includes phosphorus dynamics and um, be interested in, in how we can include phosphorus um, in the greenhouse gas work and carbon sequestration. That is a wonderful question. Uh, within uh, Descent and its predecessor century model, uh, there are phosphorus and sulfur submodels uh, as well. Uh, they are rarely used. Um, so the, the, the model structure is there in order to evaluate those things alongside the nitrogen cycling. Uh, but it's not something that gets exercised very often. And so I think that um, getting getting into that kind of modeling, I think we would want to do, uh, you know, some pretty significant additional calibration and validation just to make sure that, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're modeling what we think we're doing. Um, I'd say 90% of descent applications these days are just limited to the uh, running the model in a mode where you're looking at nitrogen, but not those other nutrients as important as they are. It's, it just hasn't been common lately. Okay. Um, we have another question in the chat from Fred Gould. Fred, if you want to unmute yourself. Sure. I, I was just thinking about, you You mentioned about tilling before planting. And, you know, in some parts of North Carolina, it's common to do no-till of cotton after cotton. And some farmers have not tilled for 10 years. And I was wondering if, if you could do this kind of planting without tillage. And have you taken that into account in terms of uh, carbon sequestration? Yeah, so in the context of the Carnata establishment, yeah, we looked at the, the tilled and the no-till uh, scenarios. Uh, within the broader uh, uh, annual rotation that we are simulating Carinata into, uh, no, we have not looked at a lot of diversity in that system. Um, and I agree that that would be something that would be interesting to, to think about if you could kind of do something that was that was continuous. So, you, you know, both for the summer crops and the Carinata winter crops, you were minimizing or avoiding that. I think you'd potentially be on a very different soil carbon uh, trajectory, at least in the in the surface uh, layer that we're focusing on with our basin simulation. So, yeah, I, that would be interesting to study, but we haven't done it yet. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question from Ramon, who has his hand raised. Ramon, if you want to unmute yourself. Um, yes, I, I'm just. Um, Want to clarify a couple of things um, for for Jason's question? We are in. Uh, I'm part of Spark. Uh, I haven't met John personally, but uh, um, so we here actually here at NSU in collaboration with New Seed, 
we're generating uh, lines. We're not using uh, transgenic approaches, but we're generating lines with mutations that allows us to make Carinata more compatible with the existing crop rotations. There's a lot of issues with herbicide, uh, herbicide residues uh, in the soil. Um, so we've had some uh, establishment issues because of that. So we're generating through mutational approaches and some genetic approaches, new lines that will help us uh, solve those issues. We cannot use uh, transgenic or gene editing approaches at this point because as uh, John said, there is a component of uh, using the protein after you extract the oil that is in the seed for animal feed. And a lot of the market for that is in Europe. And Europe has a lot of regulations um, about, you know, this kind of trades going into that. So as part of kind of a, making a happy uh, arrangements of all the moving pieces, that's one that, that we have not been able to uh, take this and has been has become an important issue because we're starting to see more disease uh, problems. And that's one of the technologies that could help us solve that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that comment. And it's it's good to meet you <laughs> and, and get more yeah, likewise. That, that aspect of the project, yeah. And also regarding Fred's question, uh, actually Carinata grows pretty well in reduced tillage. So um, once we have more vigorous and, and robust lines, actually the expectation is a lot of systems will work on, on reduce, uh, reduce from conservation tillage systems. Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, it was wonderful to have you here. Like um, we have, I, I hope everyone enjoyed this. And uh, we hope to have uh, in, may in maybe in a future colloquium. So, yeah, thank you very much. And thank everyone for the wonderful questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity and it's it's nice to meet everybody. Yeah, thank you. Um, and just I want to respect everyone's time. We are a couple of minutes over, but this was a really great discussion. And I wanted to thank everyone for coming this semester. We've had a really good lineup. And to let everyone know, we have a really good lineup next semester, too. So um, hope to see you again starting in January, Tuesdays at noon. Um, happy Thanksgiving and have a good rest of the year. Hi. Thank you again, Dr. Field. Thank you.